Hey there, and thanks for checking out episode 31 of the Eyes Free Sports podcast. Once again, this is your host here with you, Greg Lindbergh. On this episode of the Eyes Free Sports podcast, we are visiting with a very successful track and field athlete and also a judo competitor. And in addition, he works for the United States Association of Blind Athletes, aka USABA. So we talked about some other sports as well that he's helped coordinate and has been involved in through that work. So, ready, set, throw. Alright, so joining me on this episode of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast, we have Kevin Broussard, who is a very accomplished uh, track and field athlete, uh, also into judo, some of the martial arts as well. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Greg. I'm a big fan of the podcast and uh, excited to share a little bit about my story and uh, be part of uh, this great series you have going on. Awesome. Hey, I appreciate that feedback and appreciate you checking it out. So it's it's an honor to finally connect with you here and have you on. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to uh, to diving in. Sure thing. So let's uh, just kind of go chronologically here first. Talk to me about uh, where you were born, where you where uh, you grew up, and just your early years. Yeah, certainly. I I grew up in Southern California, a little beach town called San Clemente. It's a uh, smack dab in the middle of Los Angeles and San Diego. And I'm, uh, I'm about to turn 31 years old. So I was born in uh, 1990. And, you know, some of my, my earliest memories growing up was, uh, you know, having pretty severe vision impairment. Um, I was born with uh, a retinal disease that's most similar to Stargardt's. And I say most similar because uh, actually I actually had uh, genetic testing done recently and they tested for 266 known retinal diseases. And mm. I don't have uh, one of those 266. I have a mutation of a couple different types. So uh, for those familiar with Stargardt's, it's probably the best way of of uh, understanding my my kind of vision, which is primarily central vision loss. So yeah, at a young age, I had that, and I, I grew up with a, a great family. Uh, I have two brothers; I'm the the middle child, and um, I you know, grew up and uh, went to to school and uh, got into sports when I was in high school, and that kind of kickstarted my athletic career. Um, but yeah, just uh, I'm a California kid. Uh, I was a, a beach bunny. And now I live in in Colorado. Now I'm a snow bunny. So, um, Cali kid, you probably hear a little little surfer twang in my voice if you listen closely. But um, yep. don't have a lot of family out there, and it's uh, always great to to go visit, see the family, and enjoy a little beach vacation at the same time. Exactly, can't beat that to get away from the the snow and the winters once in a while. I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so I know uh, I did, uh, you know, I've, I've read about you and, and listened to some interviews and, and speeches that you've given and whatnot. And I did uh, want you to just speak a little bit about when you were, I think, about eight or nine years old. Uh, just, you know, your mindset at that time. And, and I know you went through a lot of bullying. And I'm just curious, you know, how you responded to that. And, and I guess, in a way, how that kind of motivated you maybe to to find, you know, your, your village, so to speak. Right. So like I mentioned, since as early as I can remember, I was, I was visually impaired and, uh, I was one of the only kids at my school with a disability. And, you know, what 
typically happens with young kids is the bullies latch on to the kid that's quote unquote different, right? And at my school, I was the kid that was different. When I was in kindergarten, they they gave me a really original nickname. They called me Blind Kid. And it was, yeah, I know. I don't know, I don't know where they came up with that one. Yeah, um, strange. It was, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty relentless. You know, it was, a, it was a daily occurrence where I was getting bullied and teased. And, you know, when you're that young, you're, you're growing up and you're, you're establishing your personality, you're growing your confidence, and you're just, you know, you're becoming who you are as a person. And so when you have that going on and you have people constantly telling you that you're worthless and uh, you're subhuman and, you know, you're you're just beneath them because of something out of your control, you really start to believe it. And you, when you hear it every day um, at a young age, it's hard to, to not buy into that kind of rhetoric. And so by the time I was um, by the time I was eight years old, I was having suicidal thoughts and um, I was just so sick of the the torment and the bullying. And then in one of my, my Ted talk, I, I talk about this experience where it was a particularly rough day of bullying and we're sitting at the dinner table with my family, you know, just like uh, lots of families across America do. They were, we were talking about our day, right. And how was your day? And you're talking about things that happened and, when it came to my turn, I told my whole family, my parents were sitting there that I wanted to take my own life. And, mm. you know, looking back as an adult now, I can't imagine what my parents, my, my siblings were thinking when I said that, but you know, at the time that's, that's how I felt. And there was a pretty dark cloud over my childhood because of that. And, um, you know, like I said, I have a very supportive family and whatnot, but this um, this constant bullying and tormenting just really dominated my life and my psyche. And that's how it went for me mentally for most of my childhood uh, because of my, my vision loss. And when I got into high school, I had, you know, a pretty strong realization that I could either prove people right and never accomplish anything and be that, that worthless person that they've been telling me my whole life, or I could prove them wrong and I could show them that I have talent, I have ability, and then I have the strength to persevere. And I knew that because of my vision loss, uh, people were always going to doubt me. They were always going to doubt my abilities. If I was the right the right person to do a certain job or to, to be on a team. And that, that doubt really, it really drove my work ethic. And I wanted to make sure that whether it was in sports or whether it was in school or, or, you know, my career later down the road that I would put myself in a position that no one would ever be able to doubt my ability. And so what that really, the end result there was working harder than everybody else and going the extra mile to make sure that doubt was erased. And so as I got into, you know, competitive sports, starting in, in high school, I started competing internationally in 20, sorry, 2007, when I was 17 years old, those characteristics that were, were forged when I was younger and dealing with those childhood issues 
really paid off. And, you know, looking back, it's almost a blessing that I had that because it's that work ethic that was established because of, of that doubt that my peers would provide me. It created a work ethic that's still ingrained in me and is is something that I'll probably never lose, uh, that, that inner drive to keep pushing to be the best because of my early experiences. Exactly. And I definitely appreciate that insight and perspective and you know, that dinner table conversation obviously was, I'm sure, pretty tough for everybody. But, uh, you know, like you said, kind of using that, turning that around and using that in a positive way, uh, you know, certainly can't beat that. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I, I know with that there's an undeniable connection between disability and depression, disability and mental health. And so I, I know there's a lot of people out there who have gone through or are currently going through something similar to what I described. And like you said, it's, it's turning that negative into a positive. And that's, it's, it's not an overnight process. It takes patience. It takes perseverance, but especially people with disabilities and vision loss, uh, we are not, unfamiliar with adversity we're not unfamiliar with being patient and knowing how to i mean just what we have to do to live our everyday lives right so that skill uh usually comes hand in hand and it's just tapping into that skill set that i know every person out there has to have the strength to to move on from those tough times in life that we know um you know are, are fairly common in the disability community absolutely well said so in terms of sports, uh, I understand that it was a track and field coach in high school who really made quite a positive impression on you. If you could just talk about that connection to him. Certainly. Yeah. That was my coach, coach Corbett. And he was my throwing coach at St. Clemente high school. And when I was in high school, I, I played on the football team. I played offensive line hmm. mostly because, you know, I, I have, I'm, I'm legally blind. I have some vision. I'm about 20 over 600 with corrective lenses. So they put me at offensive line pretty much because I can only, I can only block the person directly in front of me. But, um, yeah, but, um, so after the football season was over, I decided to go out for track and field and throw out the shot put in discus. And just for reference, I'm about six foot five, 290 pounds. So uh, I was not, I was not a runner in track and field as you can, as you can probably (laughs) guess. Um, So I went out for shot put and my freshman year of high school, I was terrible. I was not very good whatsoever. Uh, I think I was one of the worst throwers on the team, but I really enjoyed the process and I enjoyed the, the camaraderie I got from it. My, My friends and my, and then my coach, coach Corbett, who, who really encouraged me, who gave me a chance. You know, there's, there was coaches previously um, that, you know, held, held my vision loss over my head uh, in terms of ability, but that was not something that, that came uh, with, with this individual coach. And so he, he really pushed me along. And um, so my freshman year, again, I was, you know, I was a very mediocre. That's probably an over-exaggeration. Um, <laughs> But then my sophomore year, I had a pretty incredible jump. Um, I improved by 10 feet, which uh, if, if you're familiar with shot, but is a significant increase in distance. 
And by the end of the season, I had taken second place in the conference in the shot put. So, you know, just having that that belief from uh, the coaching staff and, um, you know, like I said, my own personal journey at that time of uh, not focusing on the things I couldn't do, but focusing on what I could do. And, um, you know, from from there, uh, I went to my first ever blind sport event in 2007 that was in Los Angeles. Um, at a place called the Junior Blind of America, which is uh, was recently renamed to Wayfinder. And they had a, an event called the Junior Blind Olympics. And I, I literally got a flyer in the mail about it. Um, I had no idea this event existed. And um, so I decided to go up there and had a, a really good competition. Um, I think I set a record for the shot put. And... I talked to a staff member. I said, Hey, I, I really like competing in blind sports. I had no idea this community even existed and, you know, where can I go for next steps? And so they connected me with United States association of blind athletes or USABA. And later that summer, I went on to compete at the world, the world youth games in Colorado Springs, where I now, where I now reside. And I ended up taking uh, second place, took a silver medal. I lost to a Russian guy by one centimeter. Not that it still bothers me to this day or anything. Um, in, in a weird sense, though, that really continued to push my work ethic. It's like, man, I was so close to winning a gold medal. Yep. You know, and every time I'm in the gym or every time I'm at practice and I'm, I, uh, I don't want to do that extra rep or get a few extra throws in that was the thing in the back of my mind that really prodded me along to, to go that extra mile and um, continue my progress. So that was, that was the kind of the introduction, uh, the first, first dipping of the toes in the water um, internationally for me. And then I continued to compete internationally in um, regional events. And then I went to my first ever, world championships in 2011, which was hosted in Turkey. And, uh, about a month before the events, I, uh, fractured my shin and, hmm. um, the doctors told me they're like, yeah, you're probably going to have to be out for about eight weeks. Well, that would have meant I missed the world championships. And so I decided to go anyways and compete, although I didn't have a chance to train beforehand. Um, and so the, the first, so in international competition, you typically, uh, get six, six attempts in track and field events, um, you know, for throwing and jumps and whatnot. And my first five attempts, I threw them all out of bounds. Um, none of them counted. I shanked them all. Oh, um, I, was, I was super rusty, right? I hadn't been training for a month and my leg was hurting and, um, and, yeah. So on the you know, on the sixth and final throw I had I you know I just I focused up and I got in the zone and I I let one loose and you know by the time it landed it was a new American record and I I won the gold medal uh, that day in the discus and then uh, the following day I took home the the gold medal in the shot put so it was a pretty incredible experience again just working all those, all those years and 
early mornings in the weight room and long days at practice, um, you know, pretty indescribable feeling when you're standing on top of the, the medal podium with a gold medal around your neck and you have the American national anthem playing, uh, you know, it doesn't get much better than that. So that was a really incredible experience. And I was, I was fortunate enough to, uh, repeat as the world champion in discus in 2015 and in Seoul, Korea as well. And then my, my career kind of took a, a turn uh, towards a different sport in 2015. So I feel like I've been rambling though. I, I think I should take a little break and let you, this is your show after all, I'll let you, uh, <laughs> let you take over the wheel here. We, you can take it where you want. <laughs> sure. No problem. I know just going back to, I know you mentioned the record for the discus, right? The American record. Correct. And what, uh, so what was the actual, the number, what was the actual record there? Yeah, so I broke it a few times. I um, I broke it initially in 2011. I think at that time it was 141 feet in the discus, hmm. and and then I broke it again in 2015 at the World Championships in Korea. Um, I think that one was 146 feet. So added about five feet to my previous record, and that was the. In 2015 was the last time I threw discus, so haven't had a chance to to break it again. But um, that's that's where I left it at 146 feet for the for the current U.S. record. Gotcha. I see. And then in terms of uh, adaptations, let's talk a little more about you know how does a blind person actually compete uh, in these types of events? Yeah, I mean the the biggest thing with you know when you're throwing an implement. Uh, you know, a shot put for those are not, aren't familiar. It's, you know, it's a big cast iron ball. And when you're on the international level on the men's side, it's 16 pounds Mm. and you do not want to get hit by a shot put. That is (laughs) no fun for anybody. Um, reminds me of a bowling ball because I used to be into bowling quite a bit and I know 16 pounds is obviously the biggest, the the heaviest ball. So, (laughs) Yeah, it's it's no fun, um, and you know a big part of of shot put practice and competition is you off after you throw it, you have to go retrieve it, and you know once in a while, just like I did in Turkey, sometimes people shank it or they they don't throw it where they're supposed to throw it, and you gotta keep your head on a swivel and you know avoid at all costs getting nailed by a shot put or discus. which can be really difficult when you're visually impaired. Um, And in fact, it was one of the things when I tried to join the track team in high school uh, was one of the initial hesitations of the head track coach at my high school was, well, you're blind. You can't be out there with shot puts and discs flying around. And my response to that was, look, I I don't want to get hit by a shot put or discus either. So I'm not going to put myself in a predicament. So, a lot of uh, some of the adaptations for that were so when, like in practice, usually what happens is five or six people will throw and then there's a bunch of shot puts out in the, uh, the throwing area. And then after five or six people will throw, um, you know, a group will go out and grab the shot puts. So people will stop throwing during that time. Hmm. Um, that was one adaptation is that, you know, a group of athletes would throw myself included after we were done, you know, the coach would say, all right, you know, press pause for 30 seconds or whatever. 
Um, and then the athletes, myself included, we would go out, uh, we ret- retrieve the shot put. And then uh, once we cleared the area, the coach would give the thumbs up for the, the next athlete to throw. Um, whereas if you're in a, you know, track and field practice and there's not a blind athlete, after each throw, the athlete would probably go out there and retrieve it and just keep, you know, keep an eye out for the implements coming their way. So little adaptations like that, or I would often have, especially in the discus, because you're throwing it, you know, in a shot put, I threw about 45 feet. So you have a general idea of where the shot put is, uh, where it may land, and you're throwing it on a dirt patch. Whereas in discus, like we would always throw it on a grass field and depending on the length of the grass, I spent a lot of, spent a lot of hours of my life trying to find disc out there in the grass and being visually impaired. It was, you know, if the lighting was bad or, you know, just depending on the conditions I had to, I had to ask my teammates uh, for, for assistance there, or sometimes they would just go grab it on my behalf. Um, and then the other the other big thing was in in throwing. Um, a lot of times you will use a visual uh, focal point to track your progression in a throw. So, like in the discus, what you do is you essentially do two three hundred and sixty degree turns in the discus circle. And so when you're, you know that when you're spinning out of the back half of the discus, a coach may tell a sighted athlete, "All right." you're going to start your, you're going to jump to the middle of the ring. Once you see this pole or you see a particular um, item on the horizon, it's kind of hard to explain as I'm talking this through, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, bottom line is there's a lot of visual focal points that throwing athletes will use to know when to do certain movements to have a successful throw. So because I didn't have that ability a lot of times it was me focusing more on the feel of when to do a certain movement or the timing, right. Of really having that, that muscle memory down because I didn't have the ability to, to focus on that, uh, that visual focal point. Exactly. I see. Very cool. And you did uh, compete in track and field at the college level as well. Correct. Yeah, I, I did. I uh, competed at the University of Laverne, which is about an hour outside of Los Angeles. And uh, through the shot put and discus um, all four years, I, I dabbled a little bit in the javelin, but soon learned that I was not very good. So just <laughs> focused my attention on the shot put and discus. So yeah, all in all, I, I did track and field for about, uh, I think, about 12 years or so. Um hmm. And something that I, you know, I recently retired from coming up on about a year now. Gotcha. I see. Uh, as far as judo, let's definitely get into judo. What, uh, you know, how did you get interested in judo? And I'm curious as far as the adaptations of that sport as well. Yeah. So, you know, one of my goals as an athlete was to uh, represent the U.S. In the, in the Paralympic Games. And so uh, in, in 2015, after I competed at the World Championships, in uh in in shot put and discus i made a kind of a career change for sports because i had that goal of going to the paralympic games and um the sport i landed on was the sport of judo 
And for those who aren't familiar with judo, it is a uh, combat sport. It's a, a grappling sport. So it's very similar in a sense to wrestling. One of the major differences between judo and other combat sports you might be thinking of, like karate or taekwondo, is that in judo, there's no striking allowed. So there's no punching. There is no kicking. There is actually no such thing as a judo chop, besides what uh, Austin Powers may say. Um, <laughs> if you want to do a judo chop, you can go for it, but you're going to get disqualified immediately. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a grappling sport. And I got into it in 2015 when I, I moved out to Colorado Springs. The, the stars kind of aligned with me professionally. I took a job with USABA and then... I started training at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center in Colorado Springs with the, the um, Olympic and Paralympic judo teams out here. And it was quite an experience of um, working. You know, I had never done any martial arts before, so I was a total newbie. Um, and here I was, a white belt who was still learning the, the basic terms of the sport. And I was training with uh, you know, Olympic and Paralympic level athletes six months before the Rio Olympic and Paralympic Games. So it was a certainly a baptism by fire there, but uh, it really, really helped me progress quickly. And, um, you know, eventually I was, uh, I became a national champion in 2017, and I was a top-ranked U.S. heavyweight for, for three years and was able to compete internationally for the U.S. So, had a had a great time in my my judo experience and got to travel the world um, just like I did in track and field and so yeah you asked about the the adaptations and judo is a almost a perfect sport for blind athletes because it is completely about the feel the feel of of the match the feel of your your opponent's body and their movements that you have to use against them. And in fact, there's a lot of sighted judo players who will do some training with um, a blindfold on because oh, wow. in, in sighted judo, by the time you see a move is coming, it's already over. It's, it happens that quickly where the recognition it takes to see a move transpiring um, and then your reaction time to that, you're already going to be done for. So that's where the, the feel component of understanding your, your uh, opponent's weight, their placement, maybe they have a lot of weight on one foot or the other, and how can you move, how can you use that against them? And you have to do all this on the fly. In a, what we would consider a sided judo match, uh, and judo is, it's, uh, the match is played on, uh, it's fought on a, on a 24 foot by 24 foot square and you have to stay within the confines of that square uh, or the mat as they call it. And so when you're uh, starting a, if you were to, to watch a sighted match, the athletes would start about 10 feet apart from each other. The referee would, would yell Hajime, which is Japanese for start. So then the athletes would come towards each other and then they try to grab the collar or the lapel to get their grips. And the grips are really important because if you're winning the grips, you're going to put yourself in a good position to win judo. And so instead of having that component where athletes start separated and then they go for, towards each other and they ha try to have quick hands and grab 
their opponent in blind judo, the athletes will start connected. So they will meet in the middle of this square, um, the square mat, and they will, they will grab, uh, typically like if you're a right-handed, if you're, if you're a right-handed fighter, you would grab, uh, with your right hand on their collar. And then with your left hand, you would grab their left, their uh, sleeve on the other side of their body. And they would do the same thing. So once each athlete is gripped up, uh, the referee will come in, they'll make sure the grips are fair. Um, and you know, there's an even positioning going on with the grips. Cause again, it's a pretty crucial part. And you don't want to have an advantage, you know, right from the get-go if you can avoid it. And so once the um, the grips are set, the referee will yell um, start, and then the fighting will commence. And if if any point during the match, if the athletes get separated, which can happen a lot because you have two people fighting each other, they're trying to get out of the the grips, they're trying to um, you know survive. Sometimes, if the athletes uh, get separated. The ref will yell stop. They'll bring the two athletes back to the middle again. They'll get the grips again. They'll stay connected. And then the referee will uh, continue the match once they're they're connected again. So that's the, the biggest adaptation there. And uh, because the ad- it's a pretty minor adaptation because, you know, 90% of the time inside of judo, athletes are going to be tangled up in grips anyways. So like when we're at the Olympic and Paralympic training center training and we're training with a, you know, you have a sighted athlete with a blind athlete to ask the sighted athlete, Hey, can we just stay gripped up the whole time? It's really not that big of an ask. It's not a huge, huge um, alteration from the, from the way a sighted match would go. Um, So that's, that's probably the biggest adaptation. And then in terms of safety measures that go into place, um, you know, blind, visually impaired athletes oftentimes cannot see where the end of the square mat is. Or if you're in a small dojo and there's, there's walls, you know, that athletes are approaching with their, with their fighting, you know, if you're a sighted athlete fighting with a blind athlete, it's kind of your responsibility to be that guide because you don't want to have your blind athlete throw you into the wall or vice versa. You don't want that action. It's trust me, judo is painful enough. The last thing you need is to get thrown into a concrete wall. Um, <laughs> yep. so whether in, in you know, like at the Paralympic training center here in Colorado Springs, we would often have, you know, blind athletes fighting another blind athlete. And so you would have kind of a, a spotter, a guide, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's hovering around to make sure that, they're not um, fighting into other athletes, which would cause potential injury, you know, ankles and legs getting tangled up and then making sure they're not uh, running into any walls or barriers that are around the dojo. So as far as your role with the United States Association of Blind Athletes, USABA, I would imagine that you've had uh, many opportunities to coordinate, to attend a variety of adaptive sporting events and, and competitions out there. And I'm curious, is there a certain sport that uh, perhaps you've been exposed to, but have not actually had a chance to play or, or actually try? Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, I've had a chance to kind of experience or certainly, um, you know, help plan several different sports with, with USABA. And 
Now, one of the ones I, I wish I would have had a chance to play more when I was younger was is goalball. Um, because when I, where I grew up in Southern California, we just didn't really have a goalball team, unfortunately. And it wasn't until my time at USABA and, um, you know, when I started working with USABA when I was 25 and I was already competing internationally in other sports. So I didn't really want to start dabbling in another sport at the time, but, um, understanding the nuances of goalball and just the uniqueness of goalball and, you know, part of my role with USABA is helping to manage the the national team programs. So I've had a chance to uh, work pretty closely, you know, and, and experience the the training and the the skills that our national team athletes have. And having a chance to watch and experience that has really given me, um, you know, a real appreciation of the sport uh, that I didn't I didn't really know much about goalball when I was younger. So it's been it's been uh, great to grow that passion and that that love for the sport of goalball. One thing I, I really want to get into, and you know, I, I retired from competitive sports in March of 2020, uh, once the postponement of Tokyo was announced. And I thought, all right, I'm finally have a chance to try some new things, um, you know, athletically and, and stay to shape, stay in shape. And one of the things I really want to do is get into swimming. Um, I've always enjoyed swimming, but of course, it's it's pretty hard to try new hobbies during a pandemic. Uh, I haven't had a chance to go to the pool just yet. Uh, it's not really uh, an option right now in my local area, at least. So I have a, a few things like that on my docket to to try some more because for oh for about 15 years it was pretty intense. Um, you know, weightlifting. And, um, you know, I played I football, I did track and field, I did judo, things that are not light on the body. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I just want to get more into cardio as well. So I really enjoy um, stationary bike work and, and things like that. And one of the sports that I'm really excited about from, you know, my, my work perspective is blind soccer. And I think you've had some some guests on your show about blind soccer, but it is uh, a sport that we are really pushing with USABA. And uh, there's there's teams that are starting up across the country. Um, it's one of the coolest sports out there. It's it's incredible to play. Uh, it's an incredible sport to watch, and um, something that we really hope is going to continue to explode in this country and. And I, I think it's, again, just one of the, the coolest things to try. And, you know, usually when we're telling people about it, they're like, how does a blind person play soccer? Right. It's just like such a visual yeah. sport. But once you hear about the, the nuances of it and how so the, the sport is played on a 40 meter long field by 20 meters wide. Um, and then the, the goals are about 12 feet by seven feet. Uh, the ball itself is like a soccer ball, but it has ball bearings inside of it. So it makes a rattling noise, whereas a goal ball is, you know, has the bells inside of it. Right. And then um, athletes, when they're on the field, so it's, it's five versus five. That includes the goalie. So there's four athletes in the field, just like in goal ball, they're wearing blindfolds or eye shades. And uh, if you have the ball on offense, you're you're creating a sound source with the ball, with the rattling of the ball. 
if you're on defense, you have to use the word voy, which is Spanish for I go or I'm coming. Uh, the game was invented in South America. That's that's the origin of that term. So on defense, you say the word boy as you approach the the offensive player to make yourself known. Otherwise, you just have a bunch of people running into each other, and that wouldn't be fun for anybody. Yeah. Um, so you have this, um, again, the sound source from the ball. You have the um, defender saying boy. And then as the offensive player dribbles the ball down the field and they approach the goal, you have a uh, sighted guy behind the goal who will say, you know, shoot, shoot, or provide some kind of sound source for the offensive player to shoot the ball. So it's uh, it's an incredible sport. We're really looking forward to continuing to grow it um, in in 2021 and I, I know we're all itching to get back to in-person programs and you know be out there with with friends again but yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of the next the next chapter in my own you know athletic and and um, exercise career and trying to trying to give the body a little rest after decades of of uh, pounding it into the ground but um so yeah, I got a lot to look forward to with that, and you know, like I said, with with USABA, um, all the different programs that we have going on too. Absolutely, that's awesome. I know there's so many things we can talk about. I, I might have to have you on another podcast because I know you're just uh, <laughs> such a great resource and wealth of info on blind sports. But uh, to wrap up here, I did want to give you just a minute to speak about employment. I know you're a big advocate for, you know, employment for those with disabilities. And I know the number 70% or so is thrown around in the blind community as far as unemployment. And I'm just curious, do you have any quick tips, tricks, as far as specifically how a blind and visually impaired person can improve, can increase their chances of employment? Yeah, I think it's uh, <clears throat> it's an issue that you know, in the disability community and in, in the blindness community, especially it's been, um, unfortunately that 70% number has been, you know, that's been the, the rate it's been hovering around for a couple of decades now. Right. Um, but I think my, my biggest advice would be make yourself indispensable and find a skill set that is valuable that will, I mean, we, we know there's a, there's a discomfort with, um, you know, people that are hiring managers to hire people with disabilities in an office or an environment that maybe has never had a person with a disability before, right? And so having that skill where um, it, it's such a valuable skill, whatever that may be for you, I think is the best way to put yourself in a position. Um, and, I, you know, I say that knowing that there's a lot of qualified people out there with disabilities who don't get that opportunity. So, um, but that's the most valuable thing because in the business world, results are everything. It all comes down to the, to the bottom line who can get the job done. So finding that thing that you are passionate about, that you have knowledge on and becoming the expert. So that there's, that's, that's the thing that hiring managers are focusing on is what your ability is and that you are the right person for the job. And, you know, something I kind of alluded to when I was younger is having that, that work ethic and willingness and patience to put yourself out there to know that you might get shot down, but that perseverance is going to pay off and you're going to be a great employee for somebody someday. And I would say the same thing for, for hiring managers and companies 
that maybe you're a little hesitant to uh, to bring people with disabilities on um, is that you're going to get yourself an employee who is is qualified. And I mean, look, we all know that getting a, a good um, job opportunity for a person with a disability is uh, can be a rare opportunity. And so if that person gets a job, they're going to hold on to it for dear life. They're going to be one of your better employees. And, um, you know, they won't be disappointed. Absolutely. Very well said and, and appreciate that insight. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, thank you uh, for for having me on and uh, giving me a, a chance, like I said, to be part of this great series. You've had some incredible guests on and, uh, you know, this has really become a, a fantastic resource for people who want to learn more about, you know, what's going on in the blind sports community or some of those adaptations on uh, sports they may be considering getting involved with. Absolutely. I really appreciate that feedback and support. And again, we've been speaking with Kevin Broussard of USABA, very accomplished blind athlete in uh, several sports. And Kevin just wants to thank you so much for your time here on Eyes Free Sports. Yeah. Thanks, Greg. Really appreciate it. sure to follow the eyes free sports podcast at facebook.com slash eyes free sports and on twitter at eyes free sports